When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm here is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Hope everyone is well, dealing with their election fatigue, PTSD, anxiety. Um, give give me four all in the fifth set with uh, a favorite tennis player any day of the week. Um, it is election day, Tuesday, and our guest this week is Craig O'Shaughnessy from his base in Austin. Craig is a tennis data guru. He writes, he works with uh, players. He's a terrific member of the tennis cast. He's worked with Novak Djokovic, among others. And basically, he uses probability to help us and players understand percentages and patterns during matches. Um, Surprised there are not more Craig O'Shaughnessy's, but we're glad uh, we have him. It is no coincidence we are recording this on Tuesday. Uh, The polls seem to have been uh, questionable in uh, predicting this election, and we talk a bit about... uh, prognostication and what we know and don't know and can speculate in terms of tennis data. A little bit different, uh, a little bit uh, less margin for error, fortunately, in tennis. Um, But Craig is one of those people who uh, you always make a point of consulting during tournaments. He's very, very generous about sharing uh, his insights and what he comes across in the course of tournaments. And uh, tennis data, I realize, probably sounds like something other than a whip-cracking Topic, I assure you, this is a very fun conversation. Craig, this is like uh, Craig's TED Talk. He's great. He's entertaining. We talk about the wisdom of serving and volleying. How can it be that the GOAT still only wins uh, you know, 11 out of every 20 points played? The fallacy of so many stats. Uh, this is a fun conversation, thanks to the guest. And here is Craig O'Shaughnessy. This must be quite something for you to, to witness. Uh, yeah, I, well, you know, I've lived in the States, you know, for a number of years now, came over and played college tennis. Um, I find the political scene fascinating. It's very different to Australia. Um, you know, I'm still Australian and I, I can't vote, but uh, you know, this has global implications. So I'm, I'm following it very closely. It's, I, I, was just, uh, I was just in Europe and they said the sa- same thing, that uh, the, the whole world is watching and this outcome is going to impact all these elections a year from now in Europe and the, the fate of the populist move. I mean, there are all sorts of impacts that people I don't think I've recognized. But anyway, that's, um, I, I was going to say, let's talk tennis and get our minds off this. But I, I, I do think mm-hmm. one reason I wanted to talk to you this week is just because statistical sampling and polling and margin of error, and there, there yep. is big element of data in this U.S. election. I, I'm curious, as, as a data scientist, how, you, uh, how you've been uh, processing this year. Yeah, like you look at the polls and the big thing that is different that I kind of have got to wrap my head around is this margin for error. Um, And it's, you know, plus, you know, it's about five percentage points. And, you know, in tennis, of all the work that I do, um, you know, we we just don't have that. We don't have that margin for error at all. So, um, you know, I, I, I look at it, I look at the data, I'm seeing... Is Trump doing better? Is is Biden doing better? Um, but what, what I find interesting is how they, how big of a sample size. So in tennis, a lot of times I know, particularly at a Grand Slam, where we were able to get big data really quickly. You know, the first two days of the tournament, half the tournament's done. So I'll do a sampling of 10 matches. 
just 10. I often do it at the US Open, I do it at the Aussie Open. I'm like, okay, first 10 matches are in, let's look at that as an aggregate and then compare to what I know are going to be the numbers. I mean, I did a prediction, I think a year ago, based on the US Open the previous year, I said, these will be the analytics. And to the number, I nailed, I don't know, at least a third of them. Um, and then with a one percentage point off, I was probably at 75% of all of it. And everything stayed within a range of two to three percentage points. Um, you know, I think I even predicted aces within 10 aces for the tournament. So tennis stays very much the same through this. Um, and when I looked at those 10 matches at the US Open and said, okay, you know, is this going to ring true right. for what the tournament's going to look like? And it basically did. So well, hold on. Well, what, tell, tell everyone what, what you were predicting. I mean, you, you weren't predicting winners. You were, I mean, you know, I was predicting predicting first, uh, it, it's on my blog. So, you know, it's, it's out there in the public so we can go right. and double check all this. Um, right. I was predicting what the first serve percentage would be. Second serve points one, um, the zero through four, five through eight and nine plus, uh, what they would be in rally length. So, so the Aussie Open 70, 20, 10, um, zero through four, five through eight, nine plus. Basically every single metric that exists on that front page of a match report, which there's typically around 17 to 20 of them, I predicted what I thought it would be and got, but, you know, got a, a lot exactly dead on and a lot within one. And, you know, it sounds impressive, but it's really not because tennis really doesn't change that much year to year. It's very, very similar um, to the global metrics that a tournament will produce. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I would, you have the good fortune of, of metrics and not uh, asking someone who, who they would vote for and, uh, yeah. you know, their, their spouse gets in their ear or they watch the wrong news channel and change their mind. Uh, but, but no, I, I mean, I think it's interesting. So you're, you're saying that you're able to make these projections um, based on what I, I think an outsider would think is a fairly small data set. Yeah, you know, one tournament, 127 matches, 128 players. Um, in some ways, yes, it is a, a small data set, but in, in another way, it's a, it's a huge data set. And, you know, Wimbledon is the only tournament in our sport that we record historical data back to 1991, that you can go to the tournament, go to the media um, center, sit down at your terminal and pull up the statistics of previous years. And Wimbledon is right there. You go all the way back to 1991. The other events, you can't even find, for the most part, what the score was in last year's final. Um, and the people that record the data you know, often point and say, well, you know, the, the, the budget's not there for us to keep all that historical data for you guys. So um, I will typically take 3,000 screenshots or save 3,000 PDFs at an event so that I have that. And when I first started doing it in 2015, I, I knew that it wouldn't be there next year. So I, I, I sat there for hours and took screenshots on my, on my phone. Um, I wasn't even sure why I was doing it, but I knew that once it was gone, once I walked out of that, that media center on Sunday night after the men's final, I will not be able to find this data again. So I, I just simply had to have it. Can we, can, can we full stop and talk about how absolutely absurd that is in 2020 when we can find a, a heat map of an NBA mid-season game from 1962 yep and, and yet uh, you know you can look at baseball data going back more than 100 years yes and yet and you're absolutely right i mean we we've, we've talked about this before you and i have if you want to find first serve percentage from the 20, 2018 french open good good yes. luck uh, good luck getting that good luck sit down with a strong cup of coffee and a lot of patience and you, you're just not going to find it it's it's amazing, it's recorded, but it's, it's not, you know, put into a database that we can access. And, you know, when I say we, we as media, we as fans, we as players and coaches, we just can't go back and find that. Now, the last, I would say the last 12 months, that's starting to drip, drip feed a little bit more, but, you know, I moved off court full time um, in 2014. So in 2013, I was still dabbling. I was on court earning a living. I was running an academy. I was doing pro 
coaching. I was very interested in analytics, but I made the jump in 2014. In 2015, I have every Grand Slam recorded, you know, every match in seven or eight pages per match, everything that I could possibly get from 2015. But before that, you, you just can't get it. And it's, it, it's it, well, you know what it hurts the most, John, is it hurts coaches. That's when it all boils down. And, and really, if it hurts coaches, it's really hurting players. It's hurting the yeah. grassroots of our sport because coaches don't have the data and the information um, to know what's right and what's wrong. Is it better to hit a forehand or a backhand? Is it better to serve and volley? You know, serve and volley is a great example is, is that over the years, we've seen players do less and less of it. We've looked at one column which is the amount of times it's happened. Whereas we don't look at the second column because we haven't had it, which is the win percentage. And we've given up on serve and volley, but the win percentages have remained identical over the years, whether you do it a lot or a little. So coaches haven't had the education, therefore it's spilled over to players where, you know, especially juniors, they're not being taught the true analytics of our sport. And I believe, you know, they get frustrated and they leave our sport because you know, you're going to lose a lot. You're going to make a lot of errors and it's all okay. It's part of our sport, but it's tough to teach that when we don't have the analytics. Right. Um, keep going with that. I mean, what are, what are, uh, you know, I mean, you, you and I have talked about a lot of things you, using analytics to talk about service speeds and you, you want proof that yeah. maybe w Wimbledon grass is slowing down. Well, there's some value in the data. I mean, I, I guess, why don't we start big picture? I mean, what, what is the value to a player? What, what can a player learn from working with you or from really immersing themselves in, in the analytics that might not be available if they just glance at a stat sheet after a match? You want to, it's real simple. You want to know what, why you won or why you lost. It's literally that simple. You start with the win and loss. So one of the things that I've done with the, the data that I use is I cut it up. I'll cut a tournament up in half. I'm like, I get everybody that won their match and make a data set out of that. And correspondingly, you end up with everybody that lost the match. And so then you go through and you say, okay, here's the people that won. And we've got these 20 metrics. I wonder where the correlation is between did the match winner perform better than the match loser in this specific metric? Um, I, I did it over uh, 2017 at Roland Garros trying to figure out is consistency overrated? And the not, I had 17 different metrics that I looked at and said, okay. What do you mean by consistency within a match or consistency over the course of a season? No, consistency in a point. Is, is okay. it, you know, if you make 10 forehands and 10 backhands, if you have a 20-shot rally, is it better to win those 20-shot rallies? Is that you know, putting more balls in the court, is that really what tennis is all about? What's the answer? So um, in 2015, IBM created the three rally links, zero through four shots, five through eight shots, and nine. And even, the, even that terminology is incorrect. It's not shots, it's rally length, which is the ball landing in the court, but it's not the ball hitting the strings. So even when we go and look at that on an IBM stat sheet, um, how many shots in the rally is just false. It's just false because I can serve to you you return to me and I hit a winner. That's a rally length of three. The very next point, I serve to you, you return to me, I hit an error. That's a rally length of two, because only two balls landed in the court. In both instances, three shots were hit. Right, right. So we just can't, it, just the labeling, just the very labeling of that um, is confusing. But so uh, I digress a little bit. Um, I'll come back to Roland Garros 2017. So I look at these 17 different metrics, every metric that Roland Garros puts out on their front page, first serve points one, second serve points one, net points played um, down through the gamut and the three, the three rally links. So the greatest correlation between a player won the match and they also won this battle of this specific metric was the zero through four rally length. That's number one. It's almost, and, and it's number one, with everything we do in our sport, it's almost a 90% correlation. So the match winner will win this metric nine times out of 10, whereas the nine plus rally lengths came in 14th out of 17th. It really doesn't matter that much to winning matches. Um, 
I, that's interesting on a number of levels. I, is that consistent across surfaces? Yes, it is. So I did a five, not only did I do Roland Garros, but I did five grand slams. I, I put grass, I put clay, I put two US Opens in there. And it's basically, it's 91% over five slams. If you win the match, you'll win zero through four. It's around 66% in five through eight, and it's around 54% in nine plus. So remember, you started a 50-50 battle. Right. So if you win the long rallies, it, it, it really doesn't matter. In fact, I think it was the 2015 US Open, the women, everybody that won their match in the women's draw won, won the, the nine plus rally length 43% of the time. So that if you're under 50%, you're underwater. So uh, think of it like this, a, a lady came off the court and they say, did you win the match? And she says, yes, I did. Then you say, did you win the long rallies of nine plus? She says, no, I didn't. I didn't win those. And that was more common than winning them. How, how many, uh, you know, we, we play 100 points. What percentage of those are going to entail rallies that are nine shots or more? 10. So it's a very small percentage of the overall points. It's a small, it, it's, it's part of this, John, when I explain it at, at seminars that I do, it's not even tennis. It's just simple math. You have a pie chart. Mm-hmm. And you create a slice of the pie that is literally 70%. It's almost all of the pie. So, the, um, you know, then you have 20% for, through the five through eight rally length and 10% through nine plus. Before we had analytics, we had to have something. So we had opinions and we guessed. Because right. that's it. We're, that's all we've got. And our sport guessed that if you just rally and rally and rally and rally mindlessly, endlessly, pointlessly in practice, you should be able to go and win some matches because of that. And the match data clearly says the zero through four rally length, which is the serve, the return, the serve plus one and the return plus one. If you win that battle, you will win the match almost nine times out of 10. Something weird has got to happen for you to, to win the match and not win that battle. Right. And you're talking men, women, clay, grass. I mean, it's this is. I'm talking two kangaroos on the dark side of the moon, two llamas in the top of a palm tree. It doesn't matter. What? Uh, let's keep going. More. Uh, I'll give you my favorite when we're done. But what? What are some other myths that we need to uh, that we need to bust? Well, certainly serve and volley. Um, serve and volley is is fantastic. You know, there was a 2013 article in the Los Angeles Times. They interviewed Federer, Davenport, um, and John McEnroe. And all three of them essentially said, servant volley's dead, servant volley's gone, you can't do it anymore, done. So you look through the years um, and, you know, I've actually got it right in front of me here. So in 2002, this is the men, in 2002, overall serve points were 33% of servant volley. Servant volley is 33% of all serve points. Uh, two years later, it's 23% in 2004. 2006, it's 14%. 2010, it's at 8%. 2011, it bottoms out at 6%. In fact, the lowest was 2019 when it's at 5%. So it goes from 30% to 5%. Right. So if you're a fan, if you're a coach, if you're a kid and you are watching tennis and you're not seeing serve and volley and you're listening to McEnroe or Davenport or Federer and you're hearing them say, you can't serve and volley anymore, you're probably going to start believing it after a while because you know th- that column certainly suggests players are not serving and volley. But there's another column. There's the win percentage column, and that's the most important. Too often in our sport, we look at the how many times did something happen column, not how many times did you win at a column. If you go out and say, you know, Craig, I, I woke up this morning, I had my Wheaties with this big silver spoon, I ate it, and then I went and played tennis with that silver spoon, and I won. I'm like, go play with it again. I don't care what you're doing out there. If it's delivering a win percentage, I'm all in. So here's the win percentages for serve and volley. 2002, they serve and volley 33% of the time, which is a lot. They win 67% of the points. In 2019, we serve and volley 5% of the time, we win 68% of the points. These are, I'll just run through just 10 right. years here. These are the win percentages. 67%, 67%, 67%, 68, 68, 66, 68, 69, 69, 67. On and on, it doesn't change. 
So what, what uh, so let me ask you a few questions. What, what's the conventional winning percentage for serving overall? Um, for the men, it's around 71, 72%. Now, no, uh, doesn't, uh, come on, John, ask it. Well, I mean, a few things. One of them is, is there a devil's advocate response that 67%, 68% sounds pretty good, but if overall it's 71%, I'm disadvantaging myself. I love it. I love that question because you just walked into a trap. Uh, it's, uh, it's an open-ended question. What do you got? <laughs> Here's the trap. Um, I'll, I'll give you one example. There was a study done on John Isner. Okay. When John Isner hit a first serve, and it was returned back in the court. He had a losing record on first serves. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow well, is right. Okay. So when we look point. at this, right. and, and, and I've, I've done, I, trust me, I've done all the research on this. If somebody serves in volleys at Wimbledon, that's out of this, and they serve in volley, and let's say it's an ace, that's not recorded as a serve in volley, and it should be. If they serve in volley, it's unreturned. Uh, it's not recorded. This okay. is actual points played. So you don't get the benefit of all those points that don't come back. So this is but, actually uh, monstrously high. Okay, so so great. So let's refine that. Because I think this because I think this is leading to another point I have, which is just refining all these statistics. So great. Yes. So what what is the percentage of points won on serve when the ball comes back over the net? I love it. Now we're starting to get into the, the meat of this. So this comes back to the mathematical term, the mode. And the mode is simply the metric or, or something that happens the most. In a data set, what happens the most? The thing that happens the most in tennis is a one-shot rally. And, and again, when we say one shot, I, I'm using that wrong terminology. It's a rally length of one. So the serve went in and it didn't come back. And it's around 30% of our sport. And people, I, you know, I, I asked Novak, I asked Nick Volateri, I asked, I asked 300 coaches at the 2015 Australian Open Coaches Conference. I, and I said, what is the most common rally length in our sport? I said, you've got 30 seconds, turn around and talk next to the person next to you. And this is the very first time that this data has come to light. It's, 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 never, it's never been dug up. Right. They talk to each other and then I say, okay, Sir, what is your answer? Four. What is your answer? Five. What is your answer? Six. Then we have some fours. On the low end, it's a three. So the first time people hear it, the most common answer by a country mile is four. Mm -hmm. Four is seven and a half percent. One shot in is 30 percent. So it's basically 400 percent difference. 400, you know, you got to double and double and double again. So, you know, isn't it crazy? That you can be, you can be a professional tennis player. You can be a coach that has spent your entire life dedicated to this sport, and you look out at something and you say something that happens seven and a half percent of the time. I think happens more than something that happens thirty percent of the time. Right. Crazy. Okay. Imagine if you were, uh, imagine if you were a medical health professional and made made that <laughs> assessment about uh, success of a surgery. Um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, the other thing, I, and uh, we, we all want to see serve and volley, but um, is there nothing about scarcity? And if, if I, you know, the, the drop shot has been very effective this year. This has been the year of the drop shot. We saw it a lot at the French Open. We saw batches where, you know, Sophia Kennan won more than half her winners were drop shot winners. Um, with serve and volley, but, but also with other shots in tennis, is there not a benefit that we can quantify based on the scarcity? If, if one out of 20 shots I hit is a drop shot, I might have one success level. If, you know, 15 out of 20 shots is a drop shot, my opponent adjusts, the tactics change, and the number, I mean, I, I always feel like when people say, oh, I don't understand, he won 10 of his 12 net approaches. That's 83%. He should be going to the net every time. And you want to say, no, 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 he's going 12 times because the opportunity presents itself and he's hit a shot that puts his opponent off the court, it doesn't mean that percentage is going to hold if that were his strategy on every point. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nuanced here. There's layers to that answer. So um, 
there's tennis you can divide up into two you, you can you can put every strategy into into two silos primary patterns secondary patterns drop shots are secondary patterns drop shots are not going to be the most dominant shot you hit out there in a match now in the final of rome novak hit 20 drop shots he won seven if you are over time if you are doing well with the drop shot it's still basically a 50 50 battle so it's a little bit more about timing it's a little bit more about expectation um you know drop shots drop shots who first of all who practices drop shots some players do some do i've got you know i, I coach one kid here in austin he's 12. um he's ranked three in the state he, he plays pretty good we practice drop shots because i've got an now you know basically my analysis mind says if something happens in a match it's going to make a way to the practice court we're going to practice it but essentially what we're saying here is the thing that happens the most which is from the back of the court which is you know baseline play um you're trying to find a pattern in that baseline play which is typically your forehand to the opponent's backhand that is going to have a large volume of of occurrence and you're trying to raise the win percentage above 50 percent that's right. it Right. So from the back of the court, the runaround forehand is king. It's not the forehand. So for a right-handed player, it's not the forehand standing in the juice court. It's the forehand standing in the ad court. That's the king. And you're trying, you know, it's the, it's the sword and shield analogy. You're trying to use the sword against the shield. The forehand is the sword. The backhand is the shield. Um, and th that's what you're trying to do a lot of. And that's going to, you know, whether you really like it or not, that's probably going to happen a lot. So in those primary strategies, you want to find the matchup that works. Then when you're either ahead in the score, where the scoreboard's not pressuring you, or you have run some Pavlovian theory and says, I've hit a run around forehand to the to deep to the back end corner, and I do it again, and I do it again, and I do it again. Now I've got my opponent expecting it. Now I change. So too often in tennis, people will change randomly and the player that's changing doesn't even know what's going on. So there's no pattern that they can stick to that they know, especially at the end of a set is like, okay, I've got, it's five all, I've got 10 games of history. I know what's going to work. I know what I'm going to do over the, the rest of these, the rest of this set. So um, you're right, but it doesn't mean serve and volley needs to needs to happen five times out of a hundred in order for it to be successful because I've got it, I, I've got the data right here. It happened 33 times out of a hundred and it was equally successful. Servant volley is a really, really, really good play that's got incredibly bad press. And I am putting it out there and trying to, you know, resurrect and just just here's the facts. And I tell you what, John, am I biased? Well, I'll tell you this. I grew up playing on grass courts in Albury, Australia. Albury is famous. It's the home of Margaret Court. It's the same club she grew up on. Everybody serves in volley. The, the young boys serve in volley. The young girls serve in volley. It's fun. It's, right. it's a fun strategy. And it's a winning strategy. I was going to say, we, we all love aesthetics. But if you can convince me it's effective, I'm doing this every time. Yeah. Well, it's both. Yeah, I got, um, it, it ticks both boxes. The um, what else? I mean, give us some. I mean, I, I go down the stat sheet, right, and I see first serve percentage, and I say, well, that that could mean that Craig is hitting his spots and is having a great. It also could mean he's not taking risks. You know, I, I could play a match and have a hundred percent first serves if I lollipopped every ball in. I see I love it. distance covered, and I see well. You could be David Ferrer and you're hustling and you're really yeah. outworking your opponent. You also could be Serena Williams dictating play. She's in the middle of the court and the opponent's on the run. Just because yeah. she runs less doesn't mean she's hustling less. Exactly. I, just, um, I see so many stats that I just don't know what the value is. G give us some stats we should be looking at and give us some stats that aren't on the stat sheet that we should be paying more attention to. Um, the, at every slam for the man, um, First serves made is around 61 to 62%. I then go and look at the players that make the most. 
up around 70%. Typically, the leading 10 players that made 70% or more hardly ever win a match. Wow. Yeah. That's great. That's uh, for, for the reason because they've not taken their chances? Because if you're making 70% of first serves, you're not, it's not behaving like a first serve. It's behaving like a second serve. So, you know, the, the, it, it's 62% is amazing. That's where you need to be. That's, you know, that's looking at tournament after tournament after tournament, match winner versus match loser. You know, there's a reason it happens. Seven out of 10, gen, you know, you may have a couple of days a year where seven out of 10 is, you know, you just have a great serving day. But if you're making seven out of 10, typically over a season, it's too many. And if you're making five out of 10, it's not enough. It's not enough. I just also wrote a story uh, for the ATP and it, it's not out yet, but we'll, we'll chat about it right now. So I'm going to give you two statistics. Uh, well, I'm going to give you, yes, first serves made and first serves won. Tell me, and this is from a real match in Vienna, first round in Vienna last week. Tell me who you think had a better first serve performance. So it's Sinner and Rude. Okay. So Sinner made 56% of his first serves. Rude made 65% of his first serves. So far, who's having a better first serve day? Exactly. Yeah, I, I would say incomplete data, but yeah, you most Good. people say, well, but you know, I, I, I follow you, right? Most incomplete data is exactly right. right. Now, because we also have another stat, you know, I, it does, who, I don't really care a lot how many you make, how many did you win? Mm -hmm. So first serves one, Sinner wins 76, Rude only wins 65. So Sinner is 56 made, 76 won. Rude is 65 made, 65 won. Who had the better serving day? The answer is, unless we're a mathematician, we don't really know. Right. And right. the answer is, they're almost identical. So what you do is you take the 56 made, turn the, the, the 76 one into a decimal and times it. So um, Sinner had a rating of 42.6 and Root had a rating of 42.3. So, uh, yeah. So yeah. that's what we need to do. So I, I've written this story and I outlined everything. It's called a first serve rating. So it involves both. It involves, and it's a rating out of 100, which all ratings should be, um, but it involves how many did I make and how many did I win? Both are included in that. Right. And, then I, and then we have a rating system that we all know um, from, high, from school, which is I get an A or I get a B or I get a C, I get a D and I get an F. So I assigned the ABCDF scale to that and... Um, and did the did the uh, did the analytics for the entire tournament in in Vienna, and uh, it, it's really interesting. It's the first time that I've done it. It just I don't I don't even know why I went down this road. And I started thinking about. It. I'm like, well, it's so incomplete to look at one or the other. Exactly. Um, and, and I mean, going. I remember you told me this once, and I don't know the exact answer, but give it to me again. If if you win 52 percent of the points you play, so that's that's not much better than a coin flip. I mean, 52 48. If I win 52 percent of the points. I play on a season. How many? Uh, what, what's what's my record? Um, I, I've I got this data sheet right here. Just give me two. I feel like uh, we. I've, I've never worked with this man. We didn't. I got it right here. All right. Good. Good. I got it right here. How? So here's a question back to you to to, to answer this. Right. 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019. Five years. How many men on the ATP tour over five years, between 2015 and 2019, won more than 52% of their points? Uh, I, I sometimes say it's men's tennis is uh, you know, the, the, the three kings and the 125 pawns. I'll, I'll guess three. No, I, I don't know. Uh, ten, 10 players. Six. Djokovic is at 55. Nadal's at 54. Federer's 54. Murray's 53. Rayanich 52 and a half, Del Potro 52.4. Six men wow. in five years have won more than 52%. So to get back, if you're 52%, you're a top 10 player in the world. You're top 10. Right. That is the average. 53% is the average. 52, 53 is the average of the top 10. So if you're down around 10, you're winning 52% and you're making millions of dollars. If you have 100 points and you start at 50, 50, you've got to find patterns of play 
to turn that into a 52-48 battle. You've got to win those two points to create the four percentage point separation, and you are literally top 10 in the world. That, that is great, because I, I think the casual fan says, Nadal won the French Open without, you know, even Svantec won the French Open without dropping a set, or Novak won 6-3, 6-3, 6-3. He won twice as many games yeah. as his, but you're saying he, he, may win, he may win twice as many games. But 6-3, may only be 54-46 in points. Yeah, yeah. And what's fascinating, in some ways, like I mentioned earlier, um, you know, the baseline points won at Wimbledon have remained the same for 20 years. Serve and volley win percentage remained the same for 20 years. But this is fascinating. 1991, Ed Berg finishes one in the world. He only wins 53% of his points. So lately, lately you've, you're at 50, you're in the 55 range. Um, but Edberg won, finished one at 50, uh, 53%. 1996, Sampras finished one, 53%. Quentin in 2000, 53%. Hewitt was the last guy that did it in 2001. He won 53%. Um, so, you know, it, now you can't win, you can't become number one in the world winning 53%. You just can't do it. If you're, this is another good one. If you're ranked, between 41 and 50 in the world. Okay. You lose more points than you win. That's, I mean, that's. <laughs> I've got the 2018 season, 2018 you know, season. You know, I mean, it, it sounds crazy, right? But, but if you think of, I mean, because yeah. I think some of us, we, we extrapolate that to other sports. And if you're a boxer and you, but if you think about it, I mean, I think we, we all talk about this, how after, after the first two days of a tournament, half the field has lost. Yep. And we also talk about just the, the, the math of tennis. It's entirely possible you could be ranked number 50 and have a losing match record on the year, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if I, if I could be 50 with a losing match record, I guess it stands to reason that I could lose yep. more than half the points played. And, and John... Who does this data help the most? I'll tell you who it helps. It helps the 10-year-old boy and girl that go out there and play matches and, 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 and break serve immediately, then get broken, then they're in tears because they're losing points and they're so fearful of losing points and, and losing the match. And they haven't been taught. It's like, you're, you're going to have the best season and, and day possible. You're, you win 55% of points you're still going to lose 45% of the points and it's a great day at the office. And that one you just lost, it's just one of the 45. It's going to happen. That's great. Uh, if you, Serena Williams loses nine out of every 20 points she plays in the best season of her career. Yeah. That's yeah, great. It's, it's exactly great. right. Here's the top 50 breakdown. If you're one through 10, you average winning 52.8. 11 through 20, 51.3. 21 through 30, 50.9. 31 through 40, 50.4. 41 through 50, 49.6. Top 50 average, 51.1. That's great. So you say, you say to uh, the little kid, who's your favorite player? Yeah. Oh, uh, it's, it's Madison Keys. Oh, yeah. she's great. She's fantastic. That's someone you should emulate. Guess what? She didn't win 50. She lost every other point she played this year. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And we don't, you know, we play a sport. First of all, how difficult is that for these young kids that have no clue whatsoever? They're going out and losing a bunch of points. That's number one. They're losing a ton of points, of which they, they, they're they all perfectionists. You want to win every single point. So as soon as you start losing points, you get upset and the tears come and the rackets fly. And secondly, tennis is about 70% errors on a good day. In the first four shots, it's 80% errors. So not only are you losing a ton of points, you're making a ton of errors. And if you don't know that that's normal, tennis can become mentally very, very difficult for you. And you can leave the sport. Right. And you can leave it early on. Um, I was going to say, you, you could flip that on its head and say, what a virtue this sport is. That uh, Good you point. can play Serena Williams and be a qualifier, and you're not going to win the match, but you're going to win nine out of every 20 points. That's not different from a coin flip. You're going to be right in there. And, and Serena yeah. may get to the net first and shake hands, but you're going to be that competitive. 
Yeah. And uh, you're probably going to beat it from the baseline. So when Serena won the, US, the Australian Open in 2017, okay. she only won 48% of her baseline points. With her finishing the points, standing on the baseline, losing record, Federer won it that year at the Aussie Open. It was the same, 48%. Um, yeah, we, we talk about that sometimes when we watch tennis. That once, once the ball's in play, right? So once, once you're in a rally, you, you've passed the serve return plus one. So now we're in the, you and I are in the middle of a rally. Yep. Is that, is that a 50-50 proposition in most cases? It, 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 when it gets to about nine plus. So w whether we like it or not, this is something that, you know, the old coaches would say, be more consistent, put more balls in play. Um, you know, if you're more consistent, you're going to win more matches. The reality is the longer the point goes, the more even it becomes. So two US Opens, 2016, 2017, for the men, it was exactly 50-50 in nine plus rallies. So you could be sitting there in the stands and the rally got to 12 shots Good. and you go, okay, I've got Cole Schreiber, he's heads. And you toss the coin and it lands heads. It's like, I bet Cole Schreiber wins the point because you really don't know. When right. Novak won in 2018, he won one, he actually, excuse me, he lost one more point. It was 132 points to 131. He lost one more point in long rallies of nine plus. Right. Novak. Right. On hard courts. No. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're saying those are a very small fraction of the total points played. Exactly. Uh, what are some, I mean, I know that, um, I know Jim, Jim credited you, Courier, with a, a great stat about Nadal winning the first point. What happens when Nadal wins the first point of a game? I love this one. But, but uh, yeah, that was from Roland Garros. So I, you know, I've got these Infosys, you know, Infosys with the men's tour. And they've done a really, really good job of bringing new data. So I get this spreadsheet that is like, Craig, here's everything we've got. Um, you're going to write your weekly ATP Infosys analysis stories um, out of this spreadsheet. And it's great. So I go in there. I'm like, okay, Roland Garros is coming up. I, I go, um, put my filters in. I only want Nadal. Okay. I only want Roland Garros. Um, and then I look at all these matches. It was, what, what 90? No, he's, he's, he's just going on a thousand. So it was almost 100 matches. It was 90, 98 matches or something like that. So I look at it. And then I, I filter by 15 love the love 15. Right. So essentially what it was, if you're playing Rafa at Roland Garros, you're serving and you drop the first time and go love 15, you are more likely to lose your service game than hold it. And I, from memory, I think it was around 57%. It, I mean, it, it was. Oh, wow. So that's not even. It's not even close. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a ways away from 50. So if you go if you go fifteen love, you're the favourite to hold serve. But love fifteen, you are you are probably losing your serve. That's amazing. So, so <laughs> it's crazy. Of, uh, so so Nadal wins the first. Just to be clear, I mean Nadal wins the first returning point. And yes, the odds are uh, the odds are between you know whatever fifty five to sixty percent. He's going to break. Exactly. Exactly right. What, um, I mean, I, I, it's funny, I, I mentioned Jim, because he, he and I talked about this like two years ago about the, yeah. the value of the breakback game. What do you see as, um, what do you see as the predictive value of that? So, so, so Novak and Rafa are obviously ahead of the field. They, if they get broken, the odds of them breaking back in the very subsequent game are whatever. Yeah, I've written stories on that. Yeah, it's a great one, you know, because it, there's, 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 for a lot of players, there's massive disappointment in getting broken. Right. You, 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 the shoulders slump, the air comes out of the lungs. You know, quite often on a change, I've got to sit down, I've got to mull that over in my head. And um, it's sometimes it's tough for these players at a lower level to bounce back and, and, and get that break back. It's difficult. It's difficult mentally. And you go and look at the data of, you know, the three leading players, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, you know, and even Andy, these players do great in this statistic because they don't, you know, they're going to lament it for, uh, you know, seconds, maybe a minute or two, um, but they're right back at it. It's, you know, it makes them more determined. And, and it reminds me of a, a presentation I was doing at Northwestern um, University with the women's team. And Claire Pollard is, was the coach there. And she goes, Craig, is I want you to explain something to me because I've got players on my team that I see them lose a point 
and I know they're going to lose the next one. But there's another player on the team, when I see them lose a point, I think they're probably going to win the next one. She's like, why is that? And I said, it's real simple. Your player is reacting in one of two ways to the adversity. They're reacting with disappointment or they're reacting with determination. And it's really the makeup of the player. And it's how they, how they think, how they, you know, the emotions that they bring up. Um, and the great players under adversity become far more determined than they do become disappointed. There's no room for disappointment out there on a tennis court. You can't feel sorry for yourself for another 10 minutes after breaking serve because the match is going to fly, fly by and out of your hands. So um, it, it speaks to the quality of their strokes, but it very much speaks to the, the, the strength of their mind and the strength of their resolve to not get down on themselves. You want, you want me to play a little devil's advocate on that? Bring it. So, so in other sports, when you have these statistical aberrations, right? So the player who's not supposed to hit two free throws in a row hits two free throws in a row. Um, when, when basically, when, the, when we depart from script, strange things happen. Mm -hmm. So I just broke Rafa Nadal on clay in my subsequent service game to taking nothing away from the return or taking nothing away from Nadal. The fact that I am now going and grabbing those balls and stepping up to the line, knowing that I just broke Rafa is such, I, I've intuited that this is such a statistical aberration that that is impacting my performance. So some of this is about Nadal and his lack of, you know, his short-term memory and his resilience and yep. his bounce back. But some of this is about what it does to the server when they've experienced something that at some level they didn't expect to experience. So are you saying that there's a lot of euphoria quickly and then, and then yeah, it quickly the, the, goes away? Or, yeah, or? The, the, some, no, but, but the, the, it's jarring to the returner. If, if I'm the qualifier, or even you know, I'm Diego Schwartzman and I broke Rafa, yep. it is jarring to me as the player who is now serving that I have just achieved something that at some level I realize is statistically unlikely. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. There's, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of layers to this and um, you know the how a player reacts um, you know yeah, success uh, as well as adversity ex exactly I mean you know it's it, there's a lot of players out there you know I was one as a junior as well is that I you know you get more scared of winning than you do of losing right. you right. know I would get up I would be a wreck I'm up 4-1 in the first set my mind, I was a wreck. I, you know, I, I, I wanted to be behind. Playing me from behind is a piece of cake. You've got no expectation. Right. It's so easy. But playing from in front, a lot tougher. Can we quantify that? I think we can. Yeah, I think we can. Um, you know, I, I would like, I, I would like to, do, you know, if I was doing a research piece on that, um, I would, I would like to kick that off by interviewing a bunch of players first and, and getting their feel and understanding from that is that, okay, you're up 4-1. You're up um, and and I, I don't think, you know, if you go and ask a bunch of kids at a junior tournament, let's say you go to a national Orange Bowl, 12s or 14, or Orange Bowls international, but you go to a, a good leading tournament, the answers you get from the kids probably aren't that different than, oh, than that mean, uh... of the best players. Yeah, but we, we hear sometimes about players who uh, they're, they're not good closers or so, some of these pros and, and other players will, you know, pe people I think know who they are. I mean, I think yeah. the players know who the opponents are that at 5-4, at you've got a good chance to break them. But yeah. is, there a way, is there a way to apply data to that? I would say yes. Um, and maybe we should come back in, in a month or two and see whether we can actually put that together. Yeah. I would say, you know, I mean, I don't want to name names, but I'm thinking of a, you know, a guy in the top 20 right now that um, I find, you know, I, I coach a couple of guys. I work with Matteo Berrettini and Jan Leonard Strupp, and I'm going to be telling them if they're playing this particular guy, it's like he is going to double fault on big points. When yep. it gets to five all, six all, tiebreaker, break points, you know, if it's four all break point, I want you to take a step in. I want him to see that. I want you to apply pressure because 
he has a history of double folding in that area. So that, that definitely happens. Let me ask you two other statistical questions about the serve. One of them is, you know, I, I think academics that don't really know tennis have, have tried to go down this road, but I, I think it, it can be flawed. But is it ever better to hit two first serves? I mean, I feel like this is one of these per perpetual debate topics. And do, do you swallow an uptick in double faults for not having to take anything off your second serve? Is it ever a benefit to just hit all first serves? I asked Leo Levin, who runs SMT. They contract out to IBM. They do all the data analysis at the tournaments. Leo, um, you know, is, is, is a real force in tennis behind the scenes. He's done a, a lot about the analytical side of it. So I asked him that. And, um, you know, if anyone would know, it would be him. And he said, you can make a case for Karlovic and you can make a case for Isner. But outside of that, it's, it's, it's a no. It's only those guys that are kind of, you know, and you would probably now put Opelka in, in, into that argument as well. So, you know, you've got, you know, th these three guys have height that nobody else does. And because of that, um, it affects the percentages that they can put the ball in. I mean, John Isner puts a lot of, a lot of big serves in the court. So I would say at that end, um, only for those guys. Now, how about our good friend Nick Kyrgios, who out of nowhere is going to... I remember I was working with Novak, uh, I think 2018 Indian Wells. Kyrgios beats him. He beats him in um, uh, Acapulco the week before as well. And towards the end of the second set, I believe, Kyrgios hit the fastest second serve. It, it was, I think it was like 5-6 in the second set. It was something like, I don't know, hundred and. 135 miles an hour, just an absolute bomb. Second serve, wins the point. And then in the, in the very next second serve he hits is, maybe it's like 4-0 in the breaker. He hits it at like 78. <laughs> and that kind of unevenness and right. uncertainty drove Novak nuts. Drove the, 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 one of the greatest returners of our sport nuts. So... Um, you know, Dustin Brown, who I worked with at Wimbledon to, to defeat Rafa there, you know, in the pre-match preparations, like, I'm like, absolutely, Dustin, you should mix in two first serves. You absolutely must do it. Anything that we can do in this match to create chaos, right. to create confusion, to create uncertainty, to break the rhythm of Nadal, you should do it. So I am absolutely an advocate of saying there is space for all of us at the right time to throw in a real big second serve. And one of the things Novak's doing now is he's got this hybrid. And we did a lot of research to get it going, but you know, without getting into that, you'll notice that Novak now has this hard slider second serve that goes to the forehand, specifically to the forehand of the opponent. For, we've, got a, we've got a list of 10 reasons why. Um, and you know, it's, it's not 98 miles an hour and it's not 125, but it's 115. So it's, you know, it's, it's sort of an in-between, yep. in-between serve out wide. And yep. I, yeah, I mean, I, I think, w wouldn't someone say it, it all depends when he deploys that, right? You're up. He's you're deploying up it. You know, oh, you're up you're right. right. But he's, you're, you're exactly right. But in Novak's situation, he's employing it a lot. Almost, you know, in some matches, at least half of the time, sometimes more. I, I heard you say the name Opelka. And uh, I, I like him a lot. This is not disparaging to him, but he, he's a player who gets very angry at himself yep. very quickly. And, and he's talked about this. This is not a, a secret, yeah. but how much do you factor in these immeasurables that some players are going to be susceptible to chaos? Some players are going to receive an underhanded serve and it's going to piss them off and they're going to remember it three points later. And some players aren't. How do you figure into your strategy some of these personality differences and temperamental differences and you know you know them and I know them and people around the sport know them they're not so easy to quantify how do you figure that into strategy well, both for the player you coach and the opponent yeah it's, it's a really good point because ultimately when I do a pre-match analysis of an opponent it's it's really all about them what do they want what do they not want um, so you know you, you're looking at how much risk do you need to take on to defeat this opponent? 
So, you know, let's say you're, you know, uh, if you're 30 in the world and you're playing four in the world, you're probably going to need to take a little bit more risk on. So, you know, you say, okay, what area do you want to apply that risk? Do you say, I'm going to risk my legs and my lungs by, by having a lot of really long rallies against Roberto Batista Agut? Probably not a good idea. But I'm going to risk hitting some really big second serves out wide to his forehand return. Um, I, I think that's a great idea. I think that's a really good idea. I mean, his, his backhand return is incredible. The forehand return's not as good. The forehand return's not as good out wide in the juice court. So you, you've got to pick your poison and pick your battles and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to brush some risk into this specific area. And when you do it, at the right time, it's really, it's really not that risky. If you do your homework and, and you know you're doing it for the right reasons, um, it's, really, it's really not that risky. So, you know, I, I don't know how that exactly applies to Rally Opelka. I've seen him play live a bunch. You know, he's, he's a really tall guy that doesn't really look that tall when he's playing. I mean, he, he moves like a normal-sized guy. You know, when I first started working with Kevin Anderson, um, who at the time I think was the second tallest player on tour, you know, and, and he was, he was, you know, it's like we're going back to 2010, 2011, um, you know, was at the Dallas Challenger. He'd just come out of Australia. Andy Murray had beaten him badly. First match up on center court. I think it was one, two and one. Um, he comes to the Dallas Challenger. He loses to Bobby Reynolds, who's coming off wrist surgery, seven, six in the third. I have breakfast with Kevin the next morning. You know, he's around 150 in the world. I'm like, you know, Kevin, you're you're six foot ten yeah. from South Africa, but you play tennis like you're five foot ten from Bolivia. You know, you're so <laughs> far back. You're rowing. You're you're doing all this wrong. You know, so there was he just didn't know who he was. Right. He thought he was a he thought he was Diego Schwartzman. He just you know he he just didn't know who he was. And he and and to his credit, he's he's come a long way. But I always said I always said about Kevin. I said, anywhere, this is when John Isner was doing better. You know, John Isner came on the scene a little bit earlier. I said, anywhere that John Isner goes, Kevin Anderson goes. If John Isner makes 10 in the world, you're making nine. You're going to go further than That's him. That's good. And that, that was the analog based on height or based on something else? But it was more based on height. Yeah, it was, it was particularly based on height. Um, you know, Kevin, Kevin had, some, had some weaknesses, but they were unusual weaknesses. They were... I'm, I'm, you know, not scared to go to the net, but not that far off. Right. You know, I, I should I serve and volley? Um, you know, Kevin loved his backhand. I, I had to show him analytics to say, Kevin, stop hitting backhands, run around and hit forehand. <laughs> and, you know, I, the first conversation was no, I was like, no, I, I'm not doing that. I love my backhand. Great. So I, you know, data. So let me ask you this. Um, no, and you've, you've been, uh, we're, we're hitting the hour mark. This is great. I, I mean, I could do this all day, but. Um, me too. Fun what, stuff. Um, what is the, so you talk, so obviously you say, you may love your backhand, but let me show you this chart and let me explain to you why you might want to fall out of love with your backhand. Right now, 2020, what is kind of the general level of receptiveness of players towards what you're doing? And, and what, what is the range? That's, that's probably the real question. What, what is the range of receptiveness? It's better than 2019, and it's better than 2018, and it's better right. than 2017. Um, so let, let, let me just back up a little bit. So when I, 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 I moved back to the States in 2001, um, graduated from college in 91, um, worked in Houston in 95, 95 to 2001, I went back to Australia and ran the biggest tennis center in Australia, 52 courts, Wodonga Tennis Center, 30 grass, you know, uh, the, the rest were hard. And I was the, the club coach, I was the only coach, and I was the chairman of the club. So I could be a mad scientist. I could do anything I wanted. And so I'm like, can you teach pro strategy to beginners? I don't know, but I've got, a, I got 30 grass courts here, let's try. Right. So I, I went through a period where I didn't have to answer to anyone, I could do whatever drills I wanted. Um, and, and I could experiment. And then I found the value of video. And that there was a, a, an early program out there called Swinger out of Australia that, you know, you could do analysis. And then 2005, Dartfish comes out with match tagging. So I started working with Amir Delic, I think 2008. 
Um, and I would go to the tournaments with Amir and I'm the only guy out of all these tournaments, you know, you go to Miami, you go to Indian Wells, you go to Delray Beach. I'm the only guy taking a camcorder and a fence mount. And everybody's kind of, you know, be, oh God, here he is, he's got the camera. We don't need a camera. I, you know, I remember having discussions with Jay Berger, who was the head of men's tennis, the head of men's tennis for the USTA. I'm like, Jay, vid, you know, I, I, I've got dartfish, I've got a match tagging panel. Um, you know, I can tell you all your players, you need to hire me. I can tell you all your players what they're doing. No, not, not even remote, not, not even remotely interested. Nothing. You're, uh, you're, you're Jonah Hill in tennis money. I'm Jonah Hill. I go to these tournaments and other players, other coaches, you know, you just, you, you feel the vibe. Right. You know, it's like, oh, we don't need that. That's garbage. That, that O'Shaughnessy guy, you know, what, what is he doing? And, you know, it's the same in Moneyball. When you're the first guy doing all this stuff, you cop a lot of flack. But I would go and I had the numbers and I had the data and I had the video. You know, the, the data is important, but in coaching, the video is more important. The video is more important. So when Amir Delic goes three for 17 of break points against Duty Seller in, in the Knoxville Challenger, in the quarterfinals, and I sit down the next day and I show him the three of 17. I said, he's gonna serve your backhand. You're gonna slice it cross court. He's gonna run around, hit a forehand down the line. And he does it on 15 of the break points, the exact same pattern of play. Right. So then he loses to him in that tournament, but then beats him the next time he plays it because he doesn't ship that return anymore. So at one stage, I was working with Brendan Evans and Amir Delic, okay. but both guys together. And through, through a period of matches, you know, maybe it's over a year, there's 11 matches, that, that, that specifically 11 matches, that we had to play the guy again in the following 12 months. So we, get, we have 11 rematches. Right. We won 10 of the 11 rematches. Wow. Yeah. And it's because we knew the guy. All right. no, the you... guy. As soon as we got video on the guy, we had him. Patterns. Patterns and odds, patterns and probabilities. So, there we so, go. So, so what's the answer? I mean, 2020, obviously, um, you know, Andy Murray is someone that we know has embraced analytics. You worked with Novak. Um, overall, what's, what's the climate? I mean, climate's great. And, and, and again, the climate is really good because, it, it, again, it's just timing. When I, I was writing for the ATP World Tour, a review of the Masters finals, the Grand Slam finals, and the ATP finals. So I was doing about 20 stories a year. Right. And with those, with that analysis, I was bringing in my Darfish and writing my analysis. And, you know, now Serve Plus One has become part of the vernacular. Well, you know, it wasn't five years ago that I started writing about it, about this specific shot, because Rafa was doing it like crazy. He's starting these points with a Serve Plus One forehand, you know, in a Wimbledon final against Burdich in 2010, he's hitting 85% surplus one forehands and winning 64%. It's just off the charts. Right. It's off the charts. So right around that time, Infosys got involved with the ATP and they wanted me to write a story a week. And they gave me all the data. And as we know, data is really tough to get, get a hold of. Right. So I start writing these weekly stories specifically to educate coaches and players about things we've never seen at all, ever. And I see something like, well, that, I, I've been in tennis a while and I've never seen that stat. I'm gonna write it and I'm gonna spread the word. So because those weekly stories became very regular on the ATP website and the players started reading them, they became, they became far more receptive. And then when I'm writing about the, you know, the, the, the Grand Slam finals and the Masters finals, and I'm telling you why Novak is winning and why Raf is winning, and the specifics of serve plus one um, and return plus ones, the, you know, the specifics of rally length. Right. There's a lot of buy-in now. I mean, there's, you know, you've, you've got to be crazy to, to, to not understand that, you know, that, you know, there's not only am I selling courses on my website, I've got 10 courses for sale. You, I, I've written on the ATP website and on my blog, so much free information that supports all of this data. So the climate is really, really good and it's improving and it's getting better. And, you know, there's so many more things that there is for us to discover. I mean, I'm, I'm always researching, but I think in the next couple of years, we're gonna almost double, we're gonna redo all the stats. 
The stats are primitive. I was going to say, next And they're uh, a debacle. <laughs> we need to do another one of these strictly on how we can update stats, how we can yep. standardize these, and how we can see from a year prior without uh, having yes. to cache documents. Um, this, uh, this was great. I, um, John, the first thing we're going to do is get rid of the unforced error, by the way. Gone. Flick it to the curb. Well, you, you don't think a, a subjective, yeah, exactly. Um, no, we, I mean, you, you literally, this is a, a discussion for another time. I mean, you literally could go down the stat sheet and pick apart why all of these are so dirty. Why, you know, when, when aces count as winners, is it really revealing that yeah. John Isner has 35 winners if 25 of those are on aces? I mean, you could literally go stat, category by category and pick them apart. Of course. Um, all right, let, let's see how all this uh, statistical modeling and, and, uh, and, and probability is going with the, this, this election that uh, Yes. Underway. But um, this was fantastic. I'm glad uh, we, we've had suggestions to get you on. I'm glad we were, but, you know, it's always a pleasure to talk informally at tournaments, but I'm glad we were able to do this. John, it's, it's my great. pleasure. And, um, you know, we covered a lot of stuff today. And, you know, it's all about taking our sport forward. So it's wonderful to chat with you. Likewise. And uh, my, my one takeaway is the smallest incremental difference. So that 5248 is just stuck in my head. But yeah. uh, this was great. I appreciate it. Good, mate. All, all, all the right. best. And uh, we'll catch up again soon. You got it. This was great. Thanks. Thanks, Craig. Okay. Thanks to Craig. That was great. I uh, really enjoyed that. Hope you did as well. Uh, keep all of this in mind when you hear that a player is serving 75%. Uh, you will know that perhaps uh, he or she will not be winning the match. Um, keep what Craig says in mind when you learn that a player is winning the majority of the long rallies, and you will know that uh, that is no sure thing that he or she will win the match. Um, anyway, thanks to Craig. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, as always, to Jamie, who produced this. Thanks for all of you guys for uh, keeping the guest suggestions coming. Um, Alize Cornet was an interesting suggestion we just got this morning. Um, anyway, if you're inclined, subscribe, leave a review, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We will do another one of these next week. Uh, we may have a president by then. Who knows? Um, anyway, hope everyone has a good week. Take care.